Our sermon text this morning is from Luke chapter 1. If you had a bulletin, you may have seen that. I failed to say it earlier, but Luke chapter 1, verses 68 through 79. And I've just titled this, The Blessing of Zechariah, because that's what this passage is. A song of blessing from Zechariah. And so um, I am also going to uh, read from Hebrews chapter 6. If you want to mark your place there, I won't, won't have those words on the screen. But if you don't have a Bible, there is one uh, somewhere underneath the chairs in front of you there. The little black books will also have the words here on the screen. But uh, Luke chapter 1 verses 68 to 79. And I'm going to ask you to stand if you are able. In honor of the reading of God's word and just with a special attentiveness to his voice in it. Listen to the word of the Lord. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. In the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Well, God, we are thankful for your word, and we, we always are in need of it. Thank you, Lord, that it speaks truth that we need to hear. Thank you, Lord, that it delivers to us spiritual life that we need to receive and be revived by. And so, God, you know every person here, the need on every heart, the circumstances even that await us that we're not aware of. Lord, you know what it is that we need to hear today. And so we open our ears and hearts to receive it. Would you speak, Lord, your word by your spirit, through your servant, to your people, for your glory and our good. Lord, I ask that you would move me out of the way that my voice might simply be your instrument cause us to hear the words that you intend us to hear. For Christ's sake, amen. And you may be seated. Well, many of us um, have experienced, uh, for one reason or another, what it's like to go without food for you know, some extended period of time, maybe just you fasted or, or whatever, but, but maybe uh, like even being in the hospital for a surgery or uh, for some of the moms when you were 
giving birth and that kind of thing, but being in, the, you know, being in a place where you, you, you couldn't eat for some period of time. And then the first thing you ate tasted so good. You know, saltine crackers. You go, ooh, that is the best saltine cracker I have ever had. And you made some of that and some of those noises. Mmm, that is so good. Because having been without for some period of time, somehow then uh, re- receiving what you've, uh, what you've been without is just that much more meaningful and impactful. Well, that, that experience of just uh, of, of eating something after not eating for maybe a day or something like that. I mean, surely that can't even compare to what Zechariah must have been feeling uh, when he spoke the words that we just read, the first words he had spoken in nine months because he had been, been unable to speak. And so you may remember the story. If, if not, let me tell it to you. Uh, even if you do, let me refresh your memory. In fact, I'd say if there are any of those today who are just kind of new to the Bible and, and you really don't know uh, much of any of this stuff, um, Luke's gospel, like the other gospels, is telling really fundamentally the story of who Jesus is and what he's done. It's one of four gospels, and his begins with accounts of the birth of Jesus, but also the birth of his forerunner, John the Baptist, one who would go ahead of him prophesying of his coming. In fact, there was a, prophes- a prophecy that he would come and prophesy of the coming of the Messiah. And that's part of what Luke tells us in the opening of his gospel. And uh, Zechariah was a priest, and his wife Elizabeth was actually the daughter of the priestly line of Aaron. So uh, they they came from good stock, so to speak, and were godly people. But they were old, it tells us, advanced in years, and had no children because Elizabeth was barren. And this is actually the way Luke's gospel opens up. He's got a short four-verse uh, introduction, sort of, uh, as it's addressed to uh, the recipient. And then he begins with this story of this elderly, godly couple who has no children. She's barren. Well, Zechariah was on duty one night in the temple burning incense, and an angel appeared to him and told him that Elizabeth was going to have a child, a son. Um, who was to be called John. And he would be the prophet who would go ahead of the Messiah to prepare the people for his coming. Well, Zechariah didn't believe that. I mean, he, he, he questioned the angel, how is that to be? But, but apparently in a kind of an unbelieving, disbelieving way. Um, just because it, it, the angel responds uh, as if that's the case. In other words, he's not just asking for more information. He, he just doubts that that can even be true, that she can have a child. That actually is not the only such uh, story we read about, about an elderly woman in the Bible uh, being promised a child and doubting uh, that that could come to pass, right? But Zechariah didn't believe it, and so um, he was struck with silence. I mean, the angel told him, okay, you're not going to be able to speak until these things come to pass. And it it doesn't say exactly why that 
uh, is sort of appropriate or suitable. I mean, why God uh, ordained that. You know, you can certainly imagine some of the byproducts of not being able to um, speak for nine months. One of those would be you would do a whole lot more listening for nine months. <laughs> and so there's some good to come of it from that. But for whatever reason, he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have the ability to, to uh, voice his unbelief. Right? So even if he doubted, he, could not, he, couldn't, he couldn't say it. He couldn't, he couldn't express unbelief and get others to encourage him in his unbelief. Right? You know how that goes. So there's, there, we don't know exactly why. There's some good to come from it. But either way, he is struck with silence. And Elizabeth got pregnant, as the angel promised. And for the whole duration of the pregnancy, Zechariah couldn't speak. And meanwhile, Luke tells us, an angel also appeared to Mary, telling her she was going to conceive by the Holy Spirit. She was also going to give birth to a son. He was going to be the Messiah. All that's happening. And Mary... Um, The angel also tells Mary, her cousin Elizabeth is also with child. So Mary runs to go visit Elizabeth during during this uh, time. She's about, uh, Elizabeth's about six months pregnant at the time. And um, so uh, again, meanwhile, uh, all of this time, Zechariah is uh, just doing a lot of listening. Probably hearing... Some of the conversation even between Mary and Elizabeth about, about what uh, has transpired in Mary's life, about the announcement of the Messiah's arrival, arrival. Well, when Elizabeth gave birth and it was time to name the child, she said his name is John. And the neighbors who had come to celebrate this birth with her are going, what do you mean, John? There's nobody in your family named John. Don't you mean Zechariah? That's more or less, you know. Uh, that's a, my paraphrase of it, but that's more or less the response. And so uh, it would seem that Zechariah some way has, has made it known to her. Perhaps he's written her a note that says uh, the baby's name is to be John. But she says that. They, they don't understand it. And they ask Zechariah, and he writes it out. His name is John. And, and then he can speak. And it says he, he responds immediately with A blessing to the Lord. He blesses the Lord. And these verses that we just read are the first words that he spoke in nine months. And they're words of blessing to the Lord. And in this song of blessing, Zechariah proclaims the goodness of God in a few ways. I mean, there's a lot that he says there about the the Messiah himself. Of course, is, which is its uh, relevance, uh, why it's placed in the narrative and why it's placed here in the narrative um, because its relationship to the uh, announcement of the Messiah's coming and even some declarations of who he's going to be and what he's going to do. But, he, but he, in this word of blessing, he proclaims a few things about the goodness of God. Number one, we see here that He says, what God has started, you can count as finished. What what God has started, you can just mark it down as finished. And he speaks this way um, about the Messiah's 
accomplishment, not just his coming, but what the Messiah has done. I mean, look in verses 68 and 69 and notice there how he speaks in the past tense. That he has visited, he has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation, past tense. The work of the Messiah who's just three months in gestation here. I mean, Mary's about three months pregnant. And what, and what, uh, what Zechariah is saying is it's done. Like his, his work is as good as accomplished. He has visited his people. He's redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation. And the baby's still in the womb. Because he, he's begun to uh, fulfill what was prophesied. And it's, it's as good as finished. And this isn't unique to Zechariah either, to, to speak this way. Um, I should say uh, there, just sort of parenthetically, the horn of salvation, the horn there is just a sort of a metaphor for the horn of a wild animal that would represent the strength and power of something like an ox, for example, that would gore, you know, could gore somebody or a bull or that kind of thing. But that's language that's used uh, sometimes just to refer to the strength and power of a of a, of a leader or an army or that kind of thing. He's raised up. He has raised up already a powerful Savior. Past tense. This is a little bit like, I mean, one of the things that comes to my mind is if, if any of you are uh, basketball fans at all or watch any professional ba- basketball, it's like uh, Steph Curry shooting like a, a look-away three-pointer, you know, where he, where he shoots it and he just starts running down court. He doesn't even watch it go in because he knows it's going in. And he's done that an uncanny number of times because he's like, he just, he just shoots it, doesn't even have to watch it go in because it's done. It's, it's, it's a done deal. And uh, th- this is a bit how some Zechariah and some others in the New Testament talk about the work of God that is already done, even though it's just begun. What he started, uh, he will finish. In fact, uh, Simeon, just over in chapter 2 of Luke, uh, sort of speaks this way. What, what's interesting uh, to note here, in the first two chapters of, of Luke, there are three passages like this that, that became songs that the church uh, began to sing as canticles or songs as a part of their regular, even daily worship in the early centuries of the church. This is one of them, this blessing of Zechariah called the Benedictus from the Latin word for blessing, the Magnificat of Mary in the previous verses, uh, which we'll, we'll be looking at next week, the sermon passage for next week. And then the other one is uh, the Song of Simeon in chapter 2. That these responses to the announcement of uh, the Savior's birth and even John the Baptist's birth become songs that the church sang. But the song of Simeon, he, he does something similar. He, it says he is, he's waited for the Messiah and God has assured him he will not die until he sees the consolation of Israel. And so he's, he, when he sees Jesus uh, in the temple and on the eighth day when they brought him up for his dedication, he, he basically says, Lord, you're letting me depart in peace. For my eyes have seen the salvation which you've made known to all people. 
to be a light to lighten the Gentiles and to be the glory of your people of Israel. He said, I can die now because it's done. And the baby's only eight days old. So you see this, uh, this kind of faith. It's actually a little bit challenging, instructive, maybe even humbling as you read uh, different people in the New Testament that, that know God's character in that way. That what he starts, it's certain he's going to finish. I, I thought about the fact that it's really one of the reasons that Paul, the Apostle Paul, was so transformed by the resurrection of Christ. He, seeing the resurrected Christ changed his life. Why? In part because he, uh, he believed that there was going to be a resurrection. And then what he sees is the first resurrected human. And he says in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ was the first fruits of the resurrection. When he's talking about the resurrection. First fruits being, you know, as you, you plant some kind of produce. And, and the first little fruit that you get from your produce is a promise there's going to be a harvest, right? Well, I think for, for people who are good at growing stuff, that wouldn't be true in my backyard uh, necessarily. But it's a, that's the idea. The, the first fruits is the assurance there's going to be more fruit. And that's what he says about the resurrection. Christ was the first fruits of all of those who belong to him that will be raised later. And he it's absolutely transformed because he's sure of it. Having seen the first person resurrected, he's sure all the rest who belong to him will be too. What God starts, he finishes, and you can, you, you can uh, count it as finished. When he has begun to fulfill a prophecy, to, uh, to answer a promise or, or what have you, uh, he's certain to finish it. That's one of the things Zechariah's word of blessing reveals about the, the nature of God. The second is that what God has promised is certain to come to pass. This is very related to the first point there. And what he started, he's going to finish. But what he has promised is certain to come to pass. Uh, and this is perhaps the, the thing I would want us to walk away uh, understanding with some greater assurance today, if nothing else. Because, because basically what Zechariah says here is he has done what he said he would do. He announces at first, blessed be the God. He's visited his people, redeemed his people, raised up a horn of salvation, just like he said he would. As he spoke by the mouth of the prophets, right? He's, he's done what he said he would do. He spoke it by the mouth of the prophets, verse 70. He, he promised, verse 72. He swore an oath to Abraham, verse 73. He's done what he said he would do. And, and where this is leading is he can't do otherwise. That's actually just the bottom line. He's done what he said he'd do because he can't not do what he said he would do. And this is the deep assurance that you and I need and we need to recover sometimes. It is the kind of assurance that will seem to somehow fade from us. We lose our grip on. We get our, our, our attention focused on uh, things that would, would cause us uh, unbelief, things that would cause us worry and fear and self-reliance and all those kinds of things, and we lose sight of the fact that, that one of the certainties we have in life is that what God has promised is certain to come to pass because it can't be otherwise. 
Maybe you remember the promise that God made to Abraham that's referenced here in Genesis chapter 15. Because he was also an old man with no children. And God promised him not only children, but more offspring than he could number. He says, come out and look at the stars. If you could number them, you could number the, the offspring that you will have. And he's somewhere, if I remember right, uh, in having sort of done the math before, he's probably somewhere around 75 years old when that particular uh, word came to him. He might have even been in his 80s. Of course, he was uh, 99, I guess, when, uh, when, the, when the baby was, uh, Isaac was actually born. But anyway, he's an old man. <laughs> pick, pick one of those ages or anything in between. He's an old man with no children, and, and God told him, not only are you going to have a child, your offspring are going to be more than you could even number. And he promised a vast land for his offspring to occupy. That's the promise that he made. And they were sealed in a one-way covenant, a one-directional covenant. If you wanted to go back and read this afternoon, you could look in Acts, or sorry, uh, Genesis 15, where it describes this. But he tells Abraham to bring a heifer and cut it in half. This is sort of a, a covenant ritual. They cut the beast in half. Its pieces fall sort of in either direction. There's a trail of blood that the, that the two parties of the covenant would both walk through. And it's sort of a statement that if I violate this covenant, may this befall me, this, this sort of death or whatever, bloodshed. May this happen to me if I were to violate this covenant. That's kind of the, the uh, ritual there. So normally both parties would walk through that trail of blood. But in this case, uh, God puts Abraham, or Abraham, it just says Abraham falls into a deep sleep. And the Spirit of God passes through. Why? Because this promise is not dependent upon whether Abraham keeps his end of the bargain. It is entirely by the grace of God. He swears because he can't swear by anything higher. He swears by himself. And he makes this promise, gives Abraham this assurance that he will do what he's promising to do. And then on the other side of the cross and the resurrection of Christ. We have Hebrews chapter 6 making reference uh, to this, this same promise or the same relationship. In verses 13 through 20, it says this, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless and multiply you. Surely. Surely I will. Those are encouraging words when it's coming from God. You don't know anybody else who can always live up to them, and you've known a lot of people who have failed to. But when God says, surely I will, he will. Because it goes on, and thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly 
to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath. Are you hearing all that God, the, the, the lengths that God went to to make the point sure, I will do this. And it's not conditioned upon Abraham. It's not conditioned upon you and me. It is, it is based on his own character and nature, something inside of himself by which he chooses to make promises and keep them, to show mercy to those to whom he will show mercy. And he, and, he, and he endeavors, it says, to do so even more convincingly to show them the unchangeable character of his promise. He guaranteed it with an oath, verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. Now that's a, that's a good sermon passage, all right, all by itself. In fact, that's multiple sermons. But there is so much there. In fact, the, the, the end of that being a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, that's exactly what we need. That's exactly what we need because you know and I know the experience of beginning to drift. That we become distanced from God. We lose sight of his goodness, his love, his mercy. And it's not because he's moved or changed. He is unchangeable. But you know, the, you know that experience. And so what is the one thing that is a sure and steadfast anchor for our soul. It is this, that his purposes are unchangeable, that his character is unchangeable, that it is impossible for him to lie. It is impossible for him to lie. Now, I know that itself is not revelatory to most of you. You know that that's true. But the impact of that, uh, we lose sight of. The significance of that. Because what he has promised is certain. It can't be otherwise. If he were to fail to keep a promise, it would make him a liar. And he can't lie. You don't have to wonder about it. You don't have to wonder about it. What you and I have to do is search out what am I, what am I absolutely certain that he has promised. And, and anchor my soul to it because it must be. It must come to pass. That doesn't mean even that it, it will in our lifetime. But it will. <laughs> it is certain to come to pass if he has promised it because he cannot lie and he cannot change. He cannot fail. And that, uh, that is a sufficient anchor to keep us steadfastly uh, tethered to his goodness and his mercy. Well, the third thing, uh, at, least, at least the third of probably many other things that uh, Zechariah declares about the nature of God is that it is in his nature to show 
tender mercy. And there are two mentions here of mercy in this passage. Verse 72 said that God saved his people from their enemies to show the mercy promised to our fathers. That to me is actually a profound statement. Mercy promised. Right? Have you ever, you, ever, you probably don't think about promised mercy. In fact, again, there's a sense in which we certainly can't presume upon the mercy of God as if we just do whatever the heck we want to and just presume God's always going to be merciful to us. That is a, that, that's a bad decision. That is bad presumption. But he has promised mercy to his people. It says in verse 72 and verse 78, says John the Baptist's ministry would include announcing that forgiveness of sins is being provided because of the tender mercy of our God. I should back up here and say, if, if you didn't connect the dots in your own mind, um, there in verse 76, um, the audience of this, of this blessing changes. Okay, so Zechariah is talking about uh, God and the Messiah that God is raising up or has raised up. And then in verse 76, he starts speaking of his son, John. John, who would be, be John the Baptist. But he says that he's announcing forgiveness of sins to God's people because of the tender mercy of our God. Do you know of the tender mercy of God? I mean, we probably need, that's again, we need to be reminded of that that is his disposition toward his children. Tender mercy. The word for tender there uh, expresses, expresses like a deep compassion of the heart. In fact, it sort of literally is derived from a word for bowels. But it's the very innermost sort of compassion that God has toward his people. In fact, there's one translation that's, that, that renders this merciful compassion rather than tender mercy. Because it's a, it's a deep compassion, tender. But, but what is mercy? Well, without going uh, into this at, at great length, I mean, it's actually an expression of compassion and loving kindness in a, in a variety of ways, showing goodness to people um, who just need goodness shown to them. We do that to one another and people we don't know in a variety of ways. And we're, we're, that's urged upon us, commanded to us even by, by God. But in relation to God, we might say that mercy, we could say at least in one sense, mercy is a, a righteous form or the righteous form of non-justice. Okay, so R.C. Sproul uh, has explained it this way, saying basically that you have... With regard to um, offenses and penalty for offenses, you know, law and violation of the law, you have justice, this whole realm of justice, and anything outside of that is non-justice. Makes sense, right? You have justice and not justice. But among non-justice, there is injustice, right, which is, which is wicked, <laughs> evil, sinful, wrong. But then also another form of 
non-justice is mercy. That if any of us violated a law or a rule, if we didn't get justice, we either got injustice or we got mercy. And God cannot be unjust. Right? He, God is incapable of injustice. You tracking with me? But he is in his very nature capable of mercy. It, it is part of who he is to be merciful and to show mercy toward people. Now, why is this worth belaboring the point? Well, because some people, as we, as we drift and as we gravitate, we gravitate continually, repeatedly back toward notions that God is heavy-handed. He is just, and which is true. But that he's altogether uh, just and punitive and that sort of thing, that we can count on. And I, and I really don't know how much confidence I can have in the tender mercy of God. I mean, when the rubber meets the road, when life gets real, and you find, whether you like it or not, that your confidence is resting somewhere, is it resting in the nature of God to be merciful toward his people? To show tender mercy toward his people. That is, it is in his very nature. That is not just haphazard and uh, uh, sort of a, a little bit of bonus material here. In fact, I would say the cross of Christ is a demonstration of God's justice and his mercy in the same act. He, he, he punishes sin through the death of, cross, uh, death of Christ. And he also provides forgiveness for those who would believe in him. Just, an act of justice and mercy in one event. It is very much in the nature of God to do it. And one of the wonderful things about here is that Zechariah was experiencing that even as he's singing. Why do I say that? Well, because the last words he spoke were words of unbelief. And the consequence of that was that he was unable to speak. It was, in a sense, justice toward him. That was not unfair. God was entirely justified in saying, Psst, zip it. It was an extraordinary consequence. But it wasn't unjust. I say extraordinary because even if you think about other people that questioned whether or not that promise could be true, Abraham and, uh, and Sarah, for example, weren't struck silent. Mary asked a question of the angel, but apparently not in an unbelieving way. Uh, but either way, it's an extraordinary consequence, but not an unjust one. God was still justified in rendering him silent and justified in the fact that he wasn't going to leave him that way. In fact, one of the interesting, uh, one of the interesting um, little nuggets, I guess, in this passage is that there's even promised mercy to Zechariah. 
Like I said, this, this seems like a little bit of a foreign concept, but he says, you're going to be silent until all these things come to pass. The, the, the implied promise in that is you'll be able to speak again nine months from now. He's justified in silence in him and also showing mercy. And God is always justified, always justified in holding sinners accountable for sin. There's nobody who will stand before God and, and, and will even uh, have opportunity to say, hey, no fear, no fair. You forgave that person. Why didn't you forgive me? God, God is always justified, will always be justified in, in demonstrating justice towards sinners. And actually, because he's a holy God, it is necessary for him to do that. We've considered that truth before. But see, God would not be good if he didn't render justice to evil, right? If he let evil go uh, unaddressed, unpunished, unresolved, he would not be good and holy. It's necessary for him to do it, in other words. And he is perfect in justice, but he, in a way only God can be, is also perfect in mercy. <laughs> it makes me glad. It makes me glad because he has promised mercy to his people, to those who belong to him. All that Christ has gone ahead of us to do, all that he has accomplished through his own life and death and resurrection. He's done for us. We're the beneficiaries of that. The mercy uh, that awaits us ultimately and even that we experience in large measure here and now. He's promised mercy to his people. He is a good, good God. Jesus is a wonderful powerful Savior that we sang about earlier. And there are those again here today, I am, I am really quite, quite sure of it because it, on any given Sunday, at any time of the year, in just about any size crowd of people, there are people who know in their head that God is loving. They know in their head that He's merciful, but they've completely lost touch with it in their, in their experience. What they're, what they're experiencing in the present, what they're feeling in the present, uh, somehow is unconnected with the goodness of God, the love of God, the mercy of God. And, and the reality is life has a way of bringing us to those places. It's hard and it's painful, and sometimes it is dark, sometimes it appears hopeless, and it, and it seems like that's the final verdict. We, we don't see what lies beyond that. But as it said here at the end of, uh, of this passage, that the forgiveness, the salvation he's provided to his people because of his tender mercy 
whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. You know, um, God, uh, in inviting us into relationship with him, in providing forgiveness of sins to us for us to be reconciled to him, and all the promises that come with that, it, he does not promise us a trouble-free life. It's never going to be that way on this earth until uh, the end of the age when heaven comes to earth. <laughs> but, but this life, this life is never going to be trouble-free. But what we are assured of is that even in our trouble, even in our darkness, even in the, the shadow of death, that he lights the darkness, illuminates it, uh, that he is present with us in it, and that he guides us through it. Because he is good, because he is merciful, and he he has finished already what he started. What we see as underway is a done deal. And, and our soul can be anchored to the assurance uh, that he will do for us ultimately what he said he will do because he cannot do otherwise. And again, I would just say to anyone here who has, who has never believed the gospel the good news of what God has done through Jesus, that he, he became man, that God became man, lived a sinless life to die a sacrificial death for sinful man like you and me and women, lest you think you're excluded from that statement. And that he rose again on the third day, conquering sin and death and ascended into heaven. He's paid the penalty that death has held over us. And it is through faith in him, believing that truth about who he is and what he has done and, and aligning our life accordingly, trusting him with our life. It's, it's through that we can be saved, forgiven of our sins and walking in the very assurance that Zechariah is reminding us of this morning. And if you've never taken that step, I, I would just urge you and invite you to make today the day that you do that. Because what it, what it will not do is immediately erase all the problems you have in your life. If we were selling an honest bill of goods, we'd say sooner or later we'll come with a new set of problems. Walking with Christ in the world, especially in a world that's increasingly hostile toward the things of God, will come with a whole new set of challenges, here or otherwise. But it comes with uh, a whole new peace that you've never known before, comfort in times of affliction, assurance in times of uncertainty, and an experience of the great love of God like nobody on the earth can give to you.
And so in whatever way this would be relevant or applicable to you today, receive it by the goodness of God uh, as we close in prayer. Well, God, we do declare your greatness and your goodness. You have been good to your people down through the ages. You've been good to your people right here at Myrtle Grove. Seated in this room right now, you've been good to me and my family In more ways, in fact, that I'm even, than, than I'm even conscious of or that we're conscious of. But in, in ways that we are aware of and yet we, we can't even number because you are just so good to us. So we praise you for that this morning. And Lord, I do pray simply that you would have your way with each person here today. That, that God, that you would that you would penetrate their hearts with the truth of this word and the truth of who you are. That your promises are sure. That your, your character, your purposes are unchangeable. That it's impro- impossible for you to lie or to fail us. And so we can anchor our soul right there. Even as the wind blows and the storms toss us about, we can be anchored to a truth that is immovable and unchangeable. Lord, would you make it so in the lives of each one of us, even now we ask in Jesus' name, amen.